Welcome to Unexpected Points. I am your host, Kevin Cole. Going to come at you with another solo episode this week. I appreciate the positive feedback I got via Twitter uh, about last week's solo pod where I was talking through the entire draft landscape. Um, primarily, I wanted to do the solo pod because I wanted to get through a bunch of information. But what I've found is, and I think some of the feedback that I've gotten is I can really dig into some of these core analytical concepts a little bit more, maybe so, than with the guest who isn't you know, quite on the same uh, plane as far as how we look at things um, in the NFL. So I think I'm going to try to do this a bit more, um, mix in some interviews during the summer that we're going to have some dead months here. So I will say, if you, if you want to ask some questions, you want to do a Q&A style here going forward, I can add some of that to the end of the pod, though I think I can least for this week and for the next couple of weeks, keep up enough time. So feel free, uh, leave a review on iTunes, leave a question there. Uh, I'd be happy to answer some of those there. And then of course, uh, I may do a call out on Twitter to get some of that information too. Um, but I'm going to try to you know stay focused and stay niche, as I mentioned earlier, on more of the analytical topics or looking at some of the news from that frame of reference. Now, uh, there's a lot of other podcasts out there where you can get great information, including at PFF. You know, we have the Two for One Drafts podcast, which I've been listening to a lot with Austin Gale and Mike Renner, where especially during draft season, you can go back in the catalog and really learn so much about the different prospects and then post-draft how they're going to fit in afterwards. I think that's great. You know, the PFF Forecast podcast, which has uh, guys from our research and development crew, uh, Eric Eager, George Jahuri. That's a great podcast to get a lot of information, especially really focused on betting markets. I'm going to talk about some betting markets here and some, and some concepts that deal with the analytical side of that, but they're really going to be focused in on that stuff. And then we have, you know, the PFF NFL show. We have the Chris Collinsworth show, which has a lot of Richard Sherman also as part of that. So a lot of different podcasts. And then of course the fantasy football podcast, fantasy football, again, is another thing I'm going to touch on in these podcasts, but it's not going to be the, the primary thing. So this week, there's a handful of things that I want to discuss. Uh, I didn't get into Aaron Rodgers much last week, despite the fact that that's when, you know, everything dropped, everything dropped right before the draft. So I didn't get into it in my draft wrap up, but I want to talk about it here, but not really focusing on Aaron Rodgers in particular, but looking at some of the dynamics in trade markets, how leverage works, things like that in the NFL, fair compensation and so on. So that's going to be uh, part of what I'm looking at from a news basis. Uh, also, there's a little bit of a dust up, you could call it, although I wouldn't call it that big of a deal, on Twitter about the Detroit Lions. So there's this focus on, you know, why didn't uh, the Bengals take Penny Sewell versus taking Jamar Chase? And then it was somehow the Dolphins have escaped this conversation. So that was a, that was a big thing. And now with the Lions in an interview, um, you, well, this is actually a, a quote tweet that came from Ben our man, Ben B. Baldwin. So the uh, computer cowboy, uh, analytical foil for a lot of people here. He had a, tweet, uh, uh, a quote from uh, on, his, on his tweet on here where Brad Holmes, the GM there for the Detroit Lions, he described that they had an offer potentially to trade down from seven, which is where they drafted Penny Sewell. And he didn't want to get too cute. Now, I'm not sure if that was in regards to trading up or trading down, but he decided... He said, he said here, you know, we had to make a choice. We decided to stay patient and we didn't want to affect how everything else went down. <clears throat> and they were so happy about the fact that Sewell fell to them, in particular that 
the Dolphins did not take him. The Dolphins took Waddle. You know, there was a big explosion in the draft room. So there was a little bit of, a, of pushing back and forth in this because a lot of people came back with the fact that, you know, oh, I guess we should just always, always trade down. So I'm going to I'm gonna touch on that a bit. And I'm going to go into some article concepts that we had, some of the research from me, some of the research from uh, Timo Riske here about steals versus reaches in draft. And I think that's a really important one, although we're getting a little bit separated from the draft here. I think it's a good one to go over because it, it aligns with what I thought intuitively, but it goes into more details about the exact value dynamics of how those work. So first, let's get into Aaron Rodgers. And the way I want to talk about Rodgers is talking about some of the, the popular narratives that are out there about what's going on with Aaron Rodgers. So he is demanding a trade or he's demanding that the GM is let go. And the concept that you're hearing a lot here is about leverage. Does Rodgers have leverage? Does he not have leverage? Okay, this is a broad thing. This is not an Aaron Rodgers thing. NFL players do not have leverage okay i mean the leverage that they do have is so tiny that it doesn't compare to other sports when we talk about these sorts of things uh the nfl player has a few primary means of leverage one is what rogers is doing now which is in a way it's kind of like the bully pulpit you can you can get out there you can leak to all of your friendly reporters you can make the the team look bad you can try to rally the opinion of fans and the nfl fans uh, fans of the particular team and the nfl fans at large to your side you can just make things uncomfortable for your team now obviously if you're in the front office somewhere you would rather be comfortable than uncomfortable that's fine but is that enough leverage to make you trade away a player that you would want to keep under any circumstance beyond that no, I don't, I don't think it's enough. So that's, that's number one. Uh, number two, you could hold out. Now, again, it's really difficult to do that in the NFL. Not only are there minimum mandatory fines. So there are mandatory fines if you're missing time in the offseason of 50K a day. There's mandatory holdbacks. Obviously, if you don't show up, there's a game check associated with every single week that you're not earning that money there. Um, if you miss time beyond the mandatory stuff, you have the legal right as a team to claw back parts of the prorated signing bonus for that year. Uh, you can, you can claw back part of that if they miss time, if they're missing the off season, part of that when they, when they miss week one. And then if you, if Aaron Rodgers decided I'm going to go and retire, they could claw back all of the rest of the prorated amount of that, that signing bonus, which for a player like Rodgers is huge. I mean, we're talking about them having the right to take back 20, $30 million. I don't care how much money you've made over your career. If the team, if you're gonna have to give up $20 million or more, that is very, very painful. I mean, you don't see it happen often because really teams only exercise that provision if they feel like they've been blindsided. Um, if they feel like it's a good faith sort of thing, they gave the signing bonus, the, you know, the contract went on, the player couldn't play anymore. Uh, they, their talent level declined so much that they couldn't continue. Uh, they were injured so much that they couldn't continue. They may let it slide what's going on here. This, while there might be some PR benefits to the Packers on quote unquote, letting this slide, this is a pure adversarial relationship at this point. 
And, you know, with Calvin Johnson, what ended up happening is I think they were just upset that Johnson walked away when he clearly could have kept on playing uh, in their minds. Now, Johnson had injury concerns, so that was a problem there. Um, and I think with the Andrew Luck situation, again, they could have clawed back money for him. They didn't, but they felt like that was more of a good faith sort of thing that Andrew Luck was doing. It wasn't to spite them. It wasn't anything against them personally. This is not necessarily the case for Rodgers. So I think the team not only has the legal right to start clawing back this money, but they also have potentially some, you know, some public opinion, some public sentiment, which may be in their favor for doing something like this. So we'll, we'll see what happens there. Um, and lastly, the leverage that a player has, and this is the main form of leverage in other leagues, in particular in, in the NBA. We want to talk about the NBA and how players can exert influence there. The main form of leverage that you have there is your willingness, or I should say being unwilling to re-sign. So unwilling to extend your contract, unwilling to sign up a new deal. So players have that, of course, in the NFL too. But it's much different between the NBA and between the NFL because there is no franchise tag in the NBA. So often, whether it's, you know, Anthony Davis is probably a great example of what, what went on in the NBA recently that, you know, he was, he was with the Pelicans, with the New Orleans Pelicans. And then once they got into you know, a year or a year and a half left in his rookie contract that's that's going to come due. If he says, I'm not going to resign there, the team is either going to walk away with nothing at the end of this, or they have to make a deal. So again, that is real leverage to get out of town. Uh, NFL players don't really have that because of the franchise tag. Now, there is... Obviously, a franchise tag, the first franchise tag you can put on someone, which is going to average out, you know, the top three, top five at that position. You can take a 20% bump for the next franchise tag. And then the third franchise tag is when you start to get into cost prohibitive sort of realms. But we're still talking about at least two years. So when you're dealing with a player who's in the middle of their contract, whether it was Deshaun Watson, we were talking about that a lot earlier in the offseason before all of the, uh, the sexual assault allegations came up. You know, whether you're talking about that or you're talking about Rodgers here who has time left on his contract, they can string this out a long time if the Packers want to, and they can force Rodgers to give, to give up all of this money in order to do that. Uh, you, you couldn't see that as much in the NBA. Uh, they eventually have to make a deal or they're going to walk away with, with nothing. There's nothing they can do there. And also in the NBA, player value is a little bit more stable there because you could be more confident that a top-notch player is really, number one, is really that valuable because they are, you know, like the quarterback in the NFL is really, really valuable. A top NBA player is probably even more valuable to their NBA team. Uh, Non-quarterbacks in the NFL, of course, are nowhere close to, to that sort of value. They're just, they're pieces, really, and what, what's going on with, with the team. So there's that. The injury risk is there, but is not as significant. Um there are players in the NBA, whether it's Kevin Durant coming off of an Achilles tear or uh, a blown ACL, uh, they go ahead and they're going to sign a max contract afterwards. So because of the max contract too, there's just not, um, 
there's not like incentive to stay in one place versus another. Uh, the injury risk that these players are worth so much more than the max contract that these other sorts of risks that come into play isn't going to lower their, their value. They're not worried about playing out a contract to the last day and then going into free agency and worrying about those things happening. Whereas in the NFL, you know, you could be worried. You could say, you know what, I'm going to take off of a great season with, with my current team. I'm going to take the extension. I'm going to take all this money up front rather than play out franchise tags and hope that something bad doesn't happen. So all of, all of that stuff comes together with the, the NFL versus the NBA. And that's why, you know, they don't have the leverage. And if you look at situations that we've seen in the NFL in recent years, people will try to compare the situation with, uh, let's look at the biggest trades that have happened, right? The biggest trades that have happened recently, uh, Laramie Tunsil went from the Dolphins to the Texans, two first round picks and a second round pick. There were some other later round picks exchanged as part of that. Uh, Jamal Adams, two first round picks. Jalen Ramsey, two first round picks. Now, were those situations when those players exerted extreme leverage to get out? Well, I mean, what they did more than anything was they made it known that if they're not going to get the deal they want. Now, remember, Jamal Adams wanted to be paid and wanted a big amount and wanted the negotiations to happen with the Jets. Um Jalen Ramsey wanted the negotiations to have with, with the Jaguars. They weren't saying we're leaving here no matter what, like you would see with an NBA player. They wanted these negotiations to happen. Now they were willing to be a little bit more patient in a new location where they had you know, trust and faith there, but it wasn't as if these teams were forced to get rid of them. If anything, you could have been doing these teams a little bit of a favor where they could go out on the free market. They can negotiate with other teams and not have to worry about word leaking out about that and then the players getting upset about the fact that they were negotiating so they can do this more out in the open because th- this this thing where you say oh a player wants to leave so therefore like like people say this about joe douglas oh joe douglas did such a great job trading away jamal adams when everyone knew he wanted to leave but that's not how negotiations work when the jets are negotiating with the seattle seahawks The Seahawks aren't saying in their heads, okay, Jamal Adams, we believe he's worth three first round picks, but you know what? Um, Well, let's not say three, because that's just absurd. But let's say initially, they're not going to say, you know what? We believe he's worth two first round picks, but we're only going to offer one first round pick because he wants to leave. So we're going to get that discount. Because if you do that, and there's another bidder, which presumably there are for these superstar players, if that other team is rational, believes that Jamal Adams is a value at two first round picks, well, then they're going to be willing to give a little bit more than you're willing to give. The Jets are going to call them up on the phone and say, the Seahawks have one first round pick on the table. What can you do? And they're going to say, well, I can do a first round pick and a second round pick. And then they're going to come back to the Seahawks who remember, believe that Jamal Adams is worth two first round picks. And they're going to say, Hey, I have a first round pick and a second round pick from this other team. What are you going to do? And eventually they're going to get up to two first round picks. They're not going to let some other team get Jamal Adams at a discount because they know that Jamal Adams wants to leave. That's not how leverage works. These teams, teams are in a trade market. They are bidding against each other. They're not just bidding against the team that, that that's, that's trading the player away. If that were the case, if they were only bidding against the team they were trading away, yeah, th- they would have some leverage there knowing that the player wants to leave, but that's not the case. They're bidding against each other. You're not going to, Uh, give value to another team 
just because you believe that player wants to leave and you feel silly paying fair market value for them. Not how it works. So you, you look at the, the returns that teams got on these trades, whether it's Tunsil, whether it's Adams, whether it's um, Jalen Ramsey. I mean, do we think looking back, and if you ask the front offices of the Dolphins, of the, the Jaguars, of the Jets, do you think they're, they regret do you, what they did? Do you think they don't think they got fair value for these players? No, they think they got fair value. They did get fair value. This was an open bidding process. And in the NFL, you can get fair value for players because players are just not worth as much. Again, to flip this back to the NBA real quick. And when a superstar player like Anthony Davis is traded away, it's literally impossible to get fair value for that player because of a couple of different things. Number one, the draft compensation you get back is destroyed by the fact that you're trading away a good player to this other team. In the NBA, the, the draft value is much more concentrated up near the top of the draft. It's changed a little bit recently, but if you look at throughout time, the best, best players of all time are nearly all right, right at the beginning of the, of the draft. Whether it's Shaquille O'Neal, whether it's Michael Jordan, who was a third pick overall, whether it's Magic Johnson, whether it's Larry Bird, all these guys up near the top. That's shifted a bit with, you know, Curry and Giannis and other guys who have, who have done well later on. But, you know, LeBron is more of the typical example there. So all this value is at the top of the draft. So when you're trading away Anthony Davis to someone else, that team is now not going to be picking at the top of the draft unless Davis gets injured for, for a long time. Whereas in the NFL, I mean, we have studies from, uh, from Massey Thaler is the famous loser's curse study, which has shown that because of the extra compensation you're giving to draft picks at the top of the draft in the NFL versus so much lower, it exponentially declines so much faster Then, in a lot of ways, the value you're getting from draft picks at the end of the first round is just as good, if not better as you're getting from the beginning of the first of the first round. Um, and when that happens, there's just a lot more value you can give away in the draft. You can give away a first round pick. You can give away second round picks. Second round picks are almost worthless in the NBA. They're not worthless. Of course, there's guys like dream on green. who have come from the second round, but they're kind of worthless. So, so there's that fact uh, in the NBA, you cannot trade away consecutive first round picks. You can only trade away every other year. So again, you just can't trade away that much. If you trade away third, three first round picks, that last of the three first round picks is not going to be realized until five years down the road. Um, and if you're going to trade away talent, you're going to trade away players. It's harder to come up with a mix of talent and players that you can credibly trade away as a team to get a superstar player. And then you don't want to leave your team completely bereft of talent to bring in that superstar. So that's why you teams can never really get the value that they really want in the NBA In the NFL they're not maxing out trade compensation. In the NBA, they're maxing it out. They're saying, we're going to give you every pick we can possibly give you. We're going to give you every good player that we can possibly give you. Remember, the Lakers gave away all the picks that they could possibly give in the future. Uh, they gave away Lonzo Ball. Uh, they, gave away, um, uh, they gave away a couple of other uh, second round, I mean, uh, former high, high picks that they gave away. And that still wasn't enough really to compensate for that NFL, not the case. I'm sure the dolphins are very satisfied with getting multiple first round picks and a second round pick 
And now Laramie Tunsil, when he goes to his new location, he got a contract that was worth 30% more than the highest paid left tackle in the NFL. Who knows if he's even a value alone just with that contract, let alone when you get the draft pick compensation into play there. Jamal Adams is going to have to resign. Jalen Ramsey did resign at the highest value for, for a cornerback here. So these teams are not burdened by this. Uh, the one situation where it possibly could have come to pass that a team would not have been able to get enough trade compensation was the Deshaun Watson scenario. And obviously that's not going to play out now, as I mentioned earlier with the sexual assault uh, allegations, whether it goes criminal or not, it's probably unlikely that Watson's even going to play this year. No one's trading for him. But in that scenario, you could see where you're only allowed to trade away three first round picks in the NFL up to three years in the future. If it was, if it was during the draft itself, you could do four rounds. You could do four um, years worth of, worth of draft picks. So you're only allowed to trade away three years of draft picks. Um, players who you can throw in, you know, it's just not going to be, players aren't going to move the needle that much uh, outside of quarterback. And if they had a quarterback, then they wouldn't be trading for Deshaun Watson in the first place. So that was going to be a really, really interesting situation because that would have been one of the first times in NFL history, someone was forced to trade a player and might not have been able to get fair market value back for that player if it happened. That's why I was kind of dubious that it was going to happen, but at least it was a possibility. So let's flip over to Aaron Rodgers here because some people think that maybe this is a similar circumstance because he's a quarterback. Um, I'm not so sure. The difference, big difference being here that Deshaun Watson is 12 years younger than Aaron Rodgers. I mean, that's an entire career younger, 12 years younger than, than Aaron Rodgers, right? So Rodgers is going to turn 38 years old in December of this year. Uh, what is a team really going to give up for them? It's going to be really, really interesting because if, these, if this, this notion that a team is going to give up three first round picks is really out there, if that's really a thing, someone's going to give away three first round picks. That might be fair value for Aaron Rodgers. That probably is fair value for Aaron Rodgers. Now, the problem with the Packers is they're set up to win now, which makes it much less attractive. But that is a damn good trade package for, for a team to be getting, especially when you consider they made the Jordan Love pick in 2020. They made that pick thinking that probably not after 2020, probably more like after 2021, they could move on from Aaron Rodgers at that point. Uh, they haven't restructured his contract. They haven't extended him. They haven't done all that. And I think that's another reason that Rodgers is a little bit upset because part of the reason for doing that is they're still leaving open that possibility that after 2021, they can let him go. So he's, Rodgers is getting out in front of this a little bit here. So in a lot of ways, this is kind of what the Packers wanted to happen. Uh, they did not expect him to return to MVP form. Yeah, if you remember, he was more of a quarterback eight to quarterback four sort of range over the last several years leading into this, uh, which prompted, again, mentioning my man uh, Ben Baldwin to write that article about Rodgers no longer being elite. Now, obviously, he was the MVP last year, but um, he's still not he's not Patrick Mahomes. OK, he's 38 years old and he's not Patrick Mahomes. If we, even if we look at MVP odds right now. Patrick Mahomes is four to one. Rodgers is nine to one. So he's about, you know, half as likely of, of winning the MVP again, again this year. No one is treating him like he's really an equivalent to that type of player. 
and you only have a few years left. So I think that the Packers may actually be able to get fair value from him. So I'm not saying that they won't trade him. I'm not saying that Rodgers doesn't have what Rodgers is doing will not eventually lead to a trade, but they don't have leverage over the Packers to force them to do something that they do not want to do. That's the key that they will not be fairly compensated for. That's the key. They will be fairly compensated for this. They will take a trade that makes sense for them. And I'm a little dubious, honestly, that there are teams out there willing to give up three first round picks. So there could be a public perception problem there too, where the Packers, if fair value is two first round picks, which might be true in this circumstance, uh, you know, they might not take it just because you see Packers fans re- replying to hypothetical trade scenarios for Rogers, where he's being traded for three picks saying, that's not enough. That's not enough. No way. You know, I mean, let's 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 chill out a little bit here. I understand you don't want Rodgers to leave. I understand you want to win a title, but in reality, that's probably a pretty fair compensation package. Okay, before I move on to the next topic here, I have a little ad read. We're, we're throwing the ad reads in here organically in, into the podcast here, and it is for PFF sponsor Western and Southern. So, uh, some people are wondering when you start thinking about life insurance, and I, I'm going to be honest here. I'm old. So <laughs> I actually have thought about this. Uh, you know, married, got kids, got all that stuff. Now, however difficult these questions can be, you can go to Western and Southern. They're backed by 130 years of experience. Uh, they are a financial group, life insurance, retirement, investments. They are a compensated endorser. Products are issued by member companies of Western and Southern Financial Group, Cincinnati, Ohio. Western and Southern. If you're like me, you're getting old, you want to secure your family, which I think is extremely important. A lot of people don't think about it. It's one of the things you put off a little bit too long. Check out Western and Southern. Okay, uh, next topic here. Let's talk, let's, let's keep it topical for some things that were going on um, as far as conversation. And this is Detroit Lions and what was going on with Penny Soul. So I, I talked about this briefly before in the intro to the podcast. So the, the point that I want to make here is the concept of trading down versus the player. So I think that the disconnect comes here where analytical types like myself will say that trading down, which is positioned by Brad Holmes and by others as the risky move to not go for the blue chip player in Penny Sewell, that is, that's a risk. You're taking a risk because you're going for lower rated players as you're dropping down. But the reality is you have to flip the equation there. Because we know looking at trade value charts, looking at past trades, looking at the value that teams get from players that in aggregate, the players that you trade down for, assuming you can get fair value for the pick, of course, which is a big assumption. We don't know who the the Detroit Lions were talking to about these trade downs. We don't know where they were going to go in the draft. We don't know all those sorts of things. Um, But assuming you're going to get that fair value, you are on average going to win that trade. So to say that you're taking on risk by making a move that is a positive expected value move does not make sense. That's not taking on risk. It's taking on risk that one of those players is going to hit versus Sewell is going to hit. Of course, you're trading down. You're you're going for, you're getting worse players. 
but you're getting multiple players and you're paying them less, which is a under underappreciated part of this whole thing too. So it should never be framed as taking a risk. If anything, it should be saying we're taking a risk by taking this player earlier and not gathering the positive expected value that is there just sitting for us. We're not doing that. That is the risky thing to do. Now, that risk can be justified. Um, but it depends on where you are as a franchise. And the Detroit Lions are unique in this discussion because they are a poster child franchise for trading down. The reason being is they're not one player away. They are not a team where you pull up their depth chart and, you know, we, we color code things in our PFF draft guide when we have all the different teams, depth charts, green for the it's a good player, you know, middle, middle of the road players, it is another color, and so on. When you bring up, and then red's a poor player, when you bring up the Detroit Lions, I'm going to bring them up here just so I can see what the color combination is here. So when you bring up the Detroit Lions, you are not going to see a lot of green, okay? In fact you are not going to see really any green. Okay, here we got it up here. DeAndre Swift on offense is a little bit green. Taylor Decker, uh, left tackle, is, is, is a little bit green. Frank Ragnow, who just got an extension at center, green. TJ Hawkinson, a little bit. Um, you know, Trey Flowers, who they picked up. Uh, Okwara, they re-signed. Jamie Collins, all those guys. Other than that, though, and most of these teams are like are mostly green or yellow. Other than that, a lot of green and yellow, Okay. Uh, you don't have the quarterback, obviously. And we already talked about Justin Fields there. So part of this value equation is you're not taking Justin Fields there. Uh, you don't have really other parts of the offensive line. Even if you're filling this right tackle spot or left tackle, maybe you're going to swing Decker over to right tackle. We'll see how that all filters out in the offseason. Uh, you don't have wide receivers. They they got Rashad Perryman, Tyrell Williams, Quinton Cephas. They took their first wide receiver in the fourth round. Okay. Um, defensive backs, god awful uh, across the board, almost. Even, uh, even Jeff Akuda, who we have hope for, was really bad last year. Uh, you don't have all these positions. So by trading out of that pick, there is no risk, virtually no risk, if you're the Lions, that you're just not going to have players on your board to those picks you trade down at where you have needs that align with what your board is aligned with those needs. And that board is going to align and they're going to align at positions that have strong positional value. You're not going to move back and have your only positional value be a running back that you need to fill or a off the ball linebacker, one of these, or one of these lower value positions, you're going to have corners that you need to take. You're going to have, um, you're going to have receivers that you need to take. You're going to have, even some offensive linemen that, that you may need, I mean, that you may need to take and some other positions like guard as you get further back into the draft. So you're going to have all of that. There are going to be spots. Um, and this is a situation where I remember for the Cleveland Browns who traded back a ton back in 2016. I mean, people will say they went to extreme there. I think there are some things to quibble with. Uh, although I looked at their roster and I don't think it was as bad as people think. They just had colossally bad quarterback play and coaching in 2017 in particular. But I remember a quote from Sashi Brown, which if you're watching this on video, Sashi right here, 
respect to, to Sashi Brown there. Uh, he had a quote where they were asking him, and I don't sure if it was after the 2016 draft where they, tra- they traded back multiple times from Carson Wentz and they traded back again, or whether it was another draft where they were doing some trading back uh, the 2017 draft. But a reporter asked them, is there a point at which it's too much trading back? And he said, yes. And then the reporter said, well, when is that point? And then he responded, not yet. And I think for the Detroit Lions, that time is definitely not yet right now. It's 100% not yet. Whereas with the Browns, you know, they have a very analytical front office now. They haven't been trading back a, a ton. They've been trading back some in the mid rounds. They've been trading up a little bit in the mid rounds. They haven't been trading back out of the first round, right? Where they got their left tackle last year. They got Jedrick uh, Wills last year last year because they needed that position they had a somewhat complete roster outside of that they needed that that left tackle so that's a little bit more understandable right there there was no quarterback to trade up for also so there may not have been a ton of value that they could have gotten out of a trade back that year um if you look at what they did this year you know they got a cornerback pretty late again maybe there was someone who's willing to come up there maybe they could have gotten some other players but it's, it's not a huge not a huge difference and they really have a, a fairly complete team that they've been building there the lions are not there um so i think it really just depends and like i said we don't know what the trade compensation was going to be but i think there's also a faulty thinking of when penny Sewell falls to you in that spot then it's an obvious pick because he's so much better than the seventh pick overall but once he falls to you what should happen you know, in a rational market, maybe this is not a, this might be an irrational market, but in a rational market, when he falls to you, other teams should see that. So even teams who don't want to trade up for a quarterback, other teams should see that. And the asking price for the trade back should go up to correspond to the value of that player. Now, if you're not seeing that, if everyone's just looking at their draft, their Jimmy Johnson draft charts, and they're rigidly stuck to that, they're not adjusting off of that and pivoting off of that because of the player then fine. Um, and if you think you've got the, the value off that, then fine. But you don't just say we got X player and he has extra value. So therefore we're not going to entertain the trade back because those teams should be recognizing that extra value that you're getting there. So th- that's the key. All right. So that, that's my uh, Detroit Lions rant. And that kind of goes into the research that I want to discuss from this week. And one of the best pieces this week was uh, Timo Risque of our research and development group. If you're not reading him, you got to read everything he puts out. He puts out maybe maybe one piece a week because uh, he goes a little bit more in depth into different topics. And he had a piece on steals and reaches in the draft. And the reason I want to go over this, and I know we talked ad nauseum about draft stuff last week, but I think this is really, really important on some of the post-draft dialogue that we've had here. So his, his data, what he did was he looked at the difference between the consensus big board, where it says a player should go, where players actually went. This is going back to 2014. So he's using work from, I believe, Arif Hassan, who has that work there. So he's looking at that, and then he's essentially plotting that against how much war they have above expectation. Now, war is wins above replacement. It's a proprietary metric that we have here at PFF. It's based upon PFF grades, which we have for every player. And it's higher or lower depending upon what functions players 
are fulfilling during the game. So passing being more valuable than the running, coverage being more valuable than run defense, things like that. So he looked at all of that and he said, let's look at players who are steals versus reach, versus reaches, right? And how, how do they work as far as what value are you getting over expectation? Now, you would think that players who are reaches would have a lower value than versus their NFL draft position expectation. So this is, this is against the war you would expect based upon where exactly they were drafted. And that's the case. That is true. Um, and, but on the other side of the equation, this is not, there's, there's, this is not an equilibrium in this market. On the other side of the equation, players who are seen as being quote unquote steals, according to the consensus board. So players who fell during the draft process and a team scooped them up, they all, they didn't provide any more value than what you would have expected. They were basically in line, maybe even slightly lower in some circumstances. So you're not getting value much from steals, um, but you are losing a ton of value from reaches. So the question is, why is that the case? Now, Timo theorizes a bit on this, and I think he has it exactly correct for the, the broader picture, but I want to discuss some other elements that he doesn't mention in the piece here. So the, the broader picture for why this is true is that, and I think this is like an Occam's razor type of situation where you're going to look for what makes the most sense, what's the most logical thing, right? So for a reach to happen, you only need one kind of bad actor, one irrational actor. Okay, when the when the Raiders move up and they get uh, Alex Leatherwood way earlier than people think they, they should take them, they only needed them to make that mistake, right? If you assume, you can assume all 31 other teams are rational actors in this scenario. So for one mistake to happen makes sense, right? That is, that's logical. Now, for uh, a steal to happen, okay, for a player like, um, I'm trying to think of who now, uh, when the, when the, when the, um, when, let's talk about our brownies here. So when the brownies in the second round, you know, they traded up to get, uh, who's it? Jeremiah Wusu Koromoa, right? They traded up to get him. He was seen as being a huge steal by a bunch of teams, but if they drafted him at 52, and you're saying, oh, you know what? He was the 28th player. I don't, I'm making this up on the consensus board. So therefore, the Browns got, you know, 14 slots of steel value. Well, in order for that to happen, again, assuming that these teams are drafting rationally, in order for that to happen, generally drafting rationally and generally they're drafting best player available too. So it's not like they're just going to like let an off the ball linebacker slide all the way back there because none of those teams have a need at that spot. Right. Um, that can happen with quarterbacks sometime near the top. And we'll, we'll talk about that. So in order for that to happen, for that to truly be a steal, there have to be, um, I'm sorry, tw 24 spots. What did I say? 14. So, so 24 spots for, for them to fall there. There have to be, 23 teams who made a mistake. 
or you know teams draft multiple times you know what i mean 24 different opportunities to make the right pick that someone made the wrong pick whereas with a reach it's just one opportunity to make the right pick where someone makes the wrong pick that's why steals are not going to happen as much steals have to be necessitated by teams passing on players right so if the raiders reach up 20 spots to get a player it doesn't mean there's another player that falls back 20 spots for a steal what it does is it shifts if teams are drafting best player available if teams are drafting rationally it shifts everyone down one spot and every single team after the raiders for the next number of spots until where leatherwood would have been a good pick Every single one of those teams is now locking in one spot of incremental value. And that is really how it works. So that's why steals don't work there. So, you know, teams that are given these outstanding draft grades based upon, based upon steals, it just doesn't work that way. So I think that's important to know and to not, not read into too much there. The, the other part that I want to mention, this is what I believe Timo does not ta- touch on as much in that, in that piece, is especially early in the draft when we're talking about positional value and we harp on that so much. Again, when you have this assumption of rationality, we know that that assumption is off in one regard, and that is with positional value. We know every time a running back is taken in the first round, that's giving positional value to someone. We know every single time that, I don't know, a defensive tackle that doesn't have ability to really rush the quarterback is taken that's giving up some positional value so by drafting players who have stronger positional value whether it's the quarterback when you need one or it's a wide receiver or it is a cornerback or it's an offensive tackle or one of these players or an edge rusher who really plays into the passing game you can be more certain that you're getting these tiny slices so so that's what being good is about in the nfl more than anything Being bad is making big mistakes where the rest of the league is benefiting slightly. So I know when I was doing the draft recap podcast, a lot of people were, some people were commenting on the fact that I was being fairly negative. And that's because it's the big mistakes that are the problems. And it's not making mistakes, which are difficult to credit teams for because it's an accumulation of small advantages that really make the best teams in the NFL. And that's what's going to differentiate those teams. Okay, so um, let's hit another piece of research for the week. And I'm actually going to switch over here to discussion of Offensive Rookie of the Year. And uh, before I get into that, though, I'm going to hit up uh, our last ad read here. And it's very appropriate because it is from DraftKings. Now, first, I'll say that for DraftKings this weekend, UFC 2 62. That's a lot of UFCs. Uh, It says from Nate Diaz to Michael Chandler, there will be no shortage of action. And DraftKings Sportsbook, the official partner of UFC, has a heavyweight offer for this weekend. 100 to 1 odds. One fighter will be walking away with the belt. Will it be you with the cash? It says, don't worry if MMA isn't for you. DraftKings Sportsbook offers great odds and promotions on basketball, hockey, and so much more. And again, I'm going to get into some player props here soon. So look to DraftKings for this. I'm talking about offensive rookie of the year. It's safe and reliable. You go ahead and download the top rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Promo code PFF and you turn $1 into $100 and you can bet on a fighter in the main card this, this weekend. Place the bet, watch 
And then that's promo code PFF, $1 into $100. Must be 21 or older in New Jersey, Indiana, and Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Okay, so um, I'm going to talk about some odds that are from DraftKings, our sponsor, and maybe some other places that are a little bit more favorable odds for this next piece of research. And I just want to walk through this because I think it'll be helpful for some people to say, what's the analytical process when looking at something that may be bettable? Uh, I don't do a ton of betting content on here, but this one jumped out at me because I started to research it for a podcast appearance. And I said, hey, you know, this is, this is kind of interesting. I like it. So what, what I'm looking at specifically here is Offensive Rookie of the Year. And I was on a podcast with Jim Saunas and Ed Fang, uh, the FanDuel Sportsbook podcast. And they were talking about this Offensive Rookie of the Year pick. And the question that was posed to me, I think, hints at some of the disconnection in this market. And the question was, you know, do you think there's any value on running backs because it's such a quarterback dominated league and quarterback dominated award, but for research for that podcast. And what I've done in this article here on PFF that you can get is the first thing you do whenever you're looking at any market is you look at the historical trends in that market. You look at the base rates, you try to figure out because every bet you're making is a risk reward proposition. You're betting based against an implied win probability. You're not just betting a binary yes or no. I mean, sometimes it's even on both sides for certain bets, but for these player prop types of bets, you have to know the risk reward there. So I look back at the awards by position and for MVP, it's very, very, very much skewed towards quarterbacks. In the last decade, nine out of 10 were quarterbacks. Adrian Peterson was the only one that was a running back. In the previous decade, going from 2001 to 2010, eight out of 10 were quarterbacks. And then going back to 1991 through 2000, six out of 10 were quarterbacks. All the ones were running backs who won. No wide receivers, no tight ends, won the MVP. Now, when you go to rookie of the year, there's some interesting stuff there because in that cohort multiple decades ago, from 1991 to 2000, it was eight running backs, zero quarterbacks and two wide receivers. Now, so the markets have shifted greatly. As we saw, you know, guys like Justin Herbert winning, winning the award, uh, Dak Prescott won the award, Kyler Murray won the award. So their quarterbacks were definitely winning now, but it's not nearly as skewed as MVP. From 2001 to 2010, it was four quarterbacks, four running backs, two wide receivers. From 2011 to 2020, it didn't really move much. Five quarterbacks, again, four running backs and one wide receiver. So running backs are still very, very good picks. So there's a roughly 40% chance that a running back wins historically. Now, this is a very strong draft for quarterbacks. Five of them going in the top 15 picks. Very strong draft for wide receivers. Three of them going in the top 10 picks. So the odds are skewed towards those positions more than they would be traditionally. And I think that makes sense. But if we look overall, I think it, maybe it's gone a little bit too far. If you add up the implied win probabilities at sports books right now for these different positions, it's almost 80% going to be a quarterback. And again, these are going to add up to more than 100% because that's how the sports books make their money, right? Is they're, they're not giving you like 
perfectly uh, even expected value odds in total, right? They're giving you uh, harder baselines to beat. So about 80% for quarterbacks, 20% for running backs, 25% wide receivers, and then 7% tight end because we have Kyle Pitts in there. So it's only 20% for running backs where we've seen them traditionally be 40%. Wide receivers are more around 10, 15%. They're at 25%. That's, I mean, they deserve to be higher, but do they deserve to be that much higher based upon what we've seen? I mean, Justin Jefferson couldn't even win last year, even though he had an incredible, incredible year. In the last couple of years, we've had some really you know, poor running back performances, quite honestly. After Saquon Barkley in 2018, who did, who did win Rookie of the Year. So that opened things up for quarterbacks. And again, quarterbacks have been winning 40, 50% of the time over the last couple of decades. They're almost 80% here. So we just know structurally that the market is undervaluing running backs versus historical odds, overvaluing quarterbacks, overvaluing wide receivers, probably by even to a, to a greater degree. So we know that. So now we dig in and we say, well, it's not the strongest running back class, but it is a top heavy running back class. We did have two running backs go in the first round where you don't necessarily see that. You did not see that last year. Obviously you only had a 32nd pick Clyde Edwards Hilaire. None of the running backs last year, whether it was uh, Deandre Swift, whether it was, Jonathan Taylor, whether it was J.K. Dobbins, whether it was uh, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, none of them were able to really get the workload that you needed to be able to win. And I looked at the past winners, so the past winners of the last decade who were running backs, they were Saquon Barkley, Alvin Kamara, Todd Gurley, Eddie Lacy. Uh, Lacy is a little bit of an interesting one because that was 2013 where you probably had the worst quarterbacks ever <laughs> drafted that year it was EJ Manuel, uh, Geno Smith and others. So there really wasn't much competition at all there. So he wasn't necessarily as high as some of these other guys in, in perception. But if you look at the rank of just pure volume, so what sort of volume do you need to get for running backs? Because running back is a volume based position on how we value it. Whereas quarterbacks is kind of an efficiency based position. MVP almost always aligns with EPA per play. And for wide receivers, it's also a volume-based position. How much accumulation, right, of production, production-based is what I should be saying more than anything else, which is yards and touchdowns. Now, you get that more easily through volume than not, right? Like, you can have extreme efficiency, and there's one extreme efficiency example of a winner, and that's Alvin Kamara, who was ranked 22nd of all running backs in 2017 when you combine attempts and targets together. So he was able to still get sixth most rushing yards of any running back this that year and the second most touchdowns he was able to get over i mean the six most total yards excuse me so he was able to get over 1500 total yards he's able to get 13 touchdowns despite having the 22nd best usage but that doesn't happen very often right when saquon barkley won in 2018 he had the second highest usage of any running back and he was number one in total yards number three in touchdowns todd Gurley. He was 10th in usage, but he only played 13 games. So when you gross that up, he would have been third in usage. Um, he was sixth in total yards. But again, you gross that up. He's, I think he's top two. And then he was sixth in touchdowns. Gross that up. He's well within the top three. Um, Eddie Lacy was sixth in usage, 10th in yards, sixth in touchdowns. So that usage question is almost always tied together, unless you have a total outlier season like Alvin Kamara. But you know, I don't know how let's let some of these other running, running backs are going to get on that sort of level. I don't think the Broncos offense, the 
Jaguars offense with a rookie um, in Trevor Lawrence or the Steelers offense, honestly, is going to have that sort of efficiency where you can have a Camara type of production with touchdowns in particular. But workload is concerned. Najee Harris is aligned to have, you know, just as good of a workload as a pick that went in the top, you know, top two pick like Saquon Barkley was, right? Even though Harris didn't go to the 24th pick. So you may be discounting him because of that, but the Steelers are already talking him up as a three down back. There's no competition there with Benny Snell and Anthony McFarland. The offense isn't great, but there's volume to be had there. And when you look back at what the best example for Najee Harris is going back, and that would be what Le'Veon Bell was, right? So Le'Veon Bell, when he was in Pittsburgh, he averaged about 24 attempts plus targets per game, nearly 23 as a rookie. If you look at his 13-game pace when he was a rookie, his touches, let's just do touches here. So we'll even scale it down a little bit and just do actual receptions and not targets. His touches, he was on about a 380-touch pace for for a 17-game season that we're going to see this year. So if Najee Harris ends up being the lead back, if they're not going to split with other people, and he doesn't get injured, which of course this is injury risk for everyone there. And anytime you have a lot of volume, you're going to have a higher injury risk. He's almost a lock to get 325, maybe 350, maybe even more touches this year. That's going to be a ton of production. And when we go down narrative street here, that Steelers offense, you know, Ben Roethlisberger fell apart last year. He's going to be a year removed from the surgery, which kept him out of 2019. He, he may get a little bit better there. You have Chase Claypool getting a little bit better there. The offensive line is still going to be bad, but when it, when it's something is that bad the year before the next year, the probability that it gets better, even if you don't improve much, even if on paper, they haven't improved much, you're likely to regress and get better. So if the offense generally gets better, if they win games, even if it's a lot of it is defense, if Najee Harris is as involved as you are, a lot of people may say, hey, this is back to the Le'Veon Bell days where a lot of people, you know, incredulous to me, but a lot of people thought that Le'Veon Bell was driving that offense, even though they had Ben Roethlisberger and they had Antonio Brown there, that he was the force there. So that narrative could come back pretty strongly for Harris. And Someone like ETN, who's already been talked about as maybe a third down back. They have James Robinson. They have Carlos Hyde. The probability that he gets the touches that he needs to be a rookie of the year candidate, and he has uh, basically the same odds at FanDuel. He has a, he's a little bit better odds. I mean, longer odds, so a better risk reward at DraftKings. But not enough of a, of a gap, in my opinion, to make up for the workload concerns. The other guy is Javante Williams. And he's more like 30 to one at different places. So I think he's an interesting guy because I think there's some probability that he completely edges out Melvin Gordon, maybe even Gordon's release, something like that. And he can really take over that backfield. He's seen as being a bigger back, even though he weighed in at less than what ETN weighed in. And he's seen as being a three down type of guy who can really break, break tackles. But again, the, the um, Broncos offense is not very good. But if it's Teddy Bridgewater, um, let's say, and they're playing well, he could get a lot of credit for that. Whereas for Jacksonville, if the Jaguars offense is good, a lot of that credit is probably still going to go to Trevor Lawrence and not to ETN. 
So for all those reasons, at a 6.3% implied probability, uh, that's why I like Najee Harris there at 15 to 1 at FanDuel. And that just gives you an idea of always looking at baselines. And it's the same concept if you're looking at fourth down conversions, if you're looking at how often you should be passing on certain downs, all these things. It's really built off of looking at baselines and then working off of that. Because if you don't have that knowledge, then you can't accurately reflect the unique context in the market. You don't want to just be looking at the, this year's market and making a play. You have to know the risk reward and you have to know the context looking back a little bit. Okay, so the last thing that I want to discuss here is the team rebuilding curve. And that's something that I discussed last week about how a player like Zach Wilson was in better position than Sam Darnold because the team was so much better. But I thought to myself, you know what? Rather than just spouting off about these things, which I enjoy doing, don't get me wrong, maybe I should actually do some research and look into these things. So what I did was I said, okay, what's the best way of figuring out whether or not a team has been built around a quarterback? You know, where are they in the rebuilding cycle? And my measure for this was using our war metric because it's a comparable number across every single position. So I looked at the war for anything outside of the quarterback position. And I said, we're going to compare that for a rookie. And I'm going to try to do this on a perspective basis. I don't want to look at what the actual war was in a rookie year, because if we're thinking about the 21, 21 class, and we want to project those guys out, you know, or if you're deciding whether or not to draft a quarterback, you don't know what the war is going to be that year. You can make a projection on what you think the war is going to be. And that's what I was going to do. I was going to look back on the historical things, historical numbers and say, going into each year, here was the roster. Here was the, how much war those players produced in prior seasons, the two prior seasons. Here's their draft position for players who don't have prior war because they're rookies or they only have one year of prior war because they're second year players. I'm going to use those variables and I'm going to project their war into the next year. I'm going to total all that up. And for the teammates, I'm going to say, that's your teammate war. So that's how strong your team is. And then on the other side, I'm going to say for these quarterbacks, I'm going to look at your three-year war over the first, second, and third year over what's expected. So over what would have been expected based upon your draft position. And I think that's really a key part because we see that some of these quarterbacks who ended up succeeding with strong teammates were really later round picks. So you wouldn't expect it to survive. So part of this is just a survival bias that they were able to survive because their teammates held them up. So at first I looked at all offensive and defensive players as part of that teammate war calculation. Definitely something there. There's a, there's a correlation. There. There's an R squared of around, you know, 0.1, which isn't great, but it's noisy, but the um, is below the, the, the p-value threshold of 0.05, which just to explain that, um, the p-value is the probability that the null hypothesis is correct. And the null hypothesis means like the default that, that you're not testing for. So in other words, the null hypothesis would be there is no relationship between teammate war and how much a quarterback overproduces his three-year expectation. So it's saying there's a less than 5% chance there's no relationship based upon those numbers. And another reason I'm using wars because it's based on our grades and our grades are supposed to be independent of teammates, right? Um, so I wanted to choose that measure because at least in theory, even if you had really, really bad teammates, the war should not fluctuate that much. So I want to see if there really is an effect on war from teammates more than you would think. Um, 
so anyway, so I looked at offense and defense came out decently. I looked at just offense improved it slightly. So defense having defense as part of that equation does not help. It's introducing more noise. It's lowering the correlation. So how good of a defensive team a, a quarterback is joining doesn't seem to be the best measure, at least if you want to be parsimonious, if you want to make the best, you know, use the least possible variable variables to bring in and get, and get the, the best results. So we're excluding defenses. And then I started excluding different positions. I said, well, let's exclude the offensive line. Nope. That, that makes it worse. Let's exclude receivers and just have the offensive line. No, that makes things worse. Let's exclude running backs, but let's keep receivers and the offensive line. Ding, ding, ding. Um, sorry, running back truthers, but that ended up helping. It ended up improving the correlation and even lowering the p-value, which means giving it more statistical significance. So again, sorry, running back truthers, but you don't get protection. You know, you're not drafting Travis Etienne in the first round to help Trevor Lawrence because if Etienne's a bigger part of the offense, that probably means it's not as effective of an offense because you're running the ball more and you're throwing lower a dot passes to your running back, which are not good. Um, so, and then I also tested just the receivers and the offensive line separately. They're, they're about equal as far as the, the numbers that you end up get coming up with the correlations and the statistical significance. But I still think that skews towards wide receiver a little bit more because the wide receivers are more dominant, a, a, a true top-notch wide receiver one produces so much war, so much more war by our equation than a great offensive lineman, a great even left tackle, that that's really going to drive the measure more. So if you hit on Jamar Chase, you're going to get a higher war projection than if you hit on Penny Sewell, if they're both top-notch elite players. So I still think that points towards, yeah, we probably still want to be going towards wide receivers rather than going towards um, offensive linemen to help build around them. So anyway, so, but, but I used the best measure, which was all, including all offensive linemen, including tight end wide receivers into the, into the equation. And I, I plotted it all out. And indeed, there is a lot better situation for, for Zach Wilson this year than versus Sam Darnold. Sam Darnold was actually in the, of the, um, let me see how many, 34 different quarterbacks that I have here who played at least 400 snaps as rookies. This goes through 2018, 20, um, 2006 to 2018, because we're not using 2019 and 2020 because we don't have three years of performance history for those guys. He was the second worst situation as far as teammate war um, projection. Bortles was the worst. Josh Allen was in the, the lowest um, fifth percentile. Josh Rosen was way down there below the 10th percentile. And what's interesting is if you look at the 2018 class versus the 2021 class, everyone in 2021 is above the 50th percentile um, as far as their, their teammate war. Trevor Lawrence is at 56th. He has about 60th percentile receivers, 40th percentile blockers. Uh, Zach Wilson is in the 70th. He has 85th percentile receivers. And I talk about this. That's a little fragile because a lot of it is based upon uh, Corey Davis. And there may be some overlap with Elijah Moore and Jameson Crowder there. So we'll see if that actually ends up happening and Denzel Mims, how they're going to fit all those guys in. So that might be an overstatement, but anyway, 85th percentile and maybe a little bit of concern. He's only at 12th percentile for blocking, but 
the projection isn't as aggressive on Makai Becton as some other people may be because he was hampered last year. And we'll see with Barrett Tucker. Obviously, we're not as high on that pick as, as the Jets are. But still, 70th overall. Trey Lance is more of a blocking team there. He has a 52nd percentile for receiving, even though you have George Kittle there. Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk, it's still not tremendous because of the, the wide receivers and the fact that Samuel was okay last year coming back, but he had all those injuries. He had injury problems. But close to the 80th percentile in blocking with Trent Williams and those guys there for 76th overall. Justin Fields, 80th percentile receiving, 27th blocking. But again, fragile because so much of that is Allen Robinson. Allen Robinson by himself is projected for about a third of the total war amongst the offensive line and receivers. So if he falls off, he doesn't play well going forward. If they lose him to free agency after this season, could be some problems for fields. Uh, 27th percentile for his blockers, 68th overall. And Matt Jones is actually number one. But again, I think the receiving war, there could be some duplication there because you're bringing in all of these pieces from different places. You're bringing in Johnny Smith from Tennessee. You're bringing in Hunter Henry from from LA. You're bringing in Kendrick Bourne from San Francisco. You're bringing in Nelson Aguilar from Las Vegas. Are those guys all going to hit their projections next year now that they're all mushed in together and they're going to be competing with each other and especially at like tight end, like how many tight end targets are there to go around? It could be a little bit dicey there, but they're at 76 percentile and then 74th for offensive line because uh, they beefed that up and they have some good players there. So he's at 83rd overall. So he's one of the best situations. So these are all quarterbacks who are in great situations. And I think that's why you could see some great quarterback play this year out of rookies who have been getting better and better over time. Whereas I mentioned in 2018, Darnold was near the worst. Allen was near the worst. Rosen was near the worst. Lamar Jackson was at like 27th percentile. So he was down. Baker Mayfield was the only guy that was in a good spot at 68th percentile with a good offensive line and Jarvis Landry and Njoku, who was okay playing there in his second, in his uh, second season. So he was pretty far up there. Um, some other guys to talk about when you divide out these cohorts, anyone quarterbacks who were in the 25th percentile or lower in teammate score. Um, there were six failures and four successes. And then if you look from 25th to 50th percentile, the failures to successes were, were four to five. So more successes than failures. And then if we go 50th to 75th percentile, there's only one failure to eight successes. And then if you look at 75th to 100th percentile, two failures, six successes. So it just shows how guys like Dak Prescott, Derek Carr, Andy Dalton, Joe Flacco, you know, later picks, guys who were not first round picks, Teddy Bridgewater. Uh, even Mike Glennon, believe it or not, played played okay when he started off. Uh, those guys, even though they weren't high picks, they were able to have success because their teams were built well around them and extend their careers. Um, Russell Wilson, another guy, he was in a above 50th percentile there. So it just shows that this really is important where you are in that drafting cycle when you're bringing in these quarterbacks. Now, you're not going to want to pass on a great quarterback because of that, but I think we do want to uh, adjust our expectations for it. And if you look at really, there were three guys who ended up being successful long-term out of that lowest cohort. And they are Josh Allen, Matt Ryan, Ryan Tannehill. Tannehill obviously never really found that success when he was in Miami, but he did move on to a better talent situation. Matt Ryan, he was pretty good as a rookie, despite not having too much outside of Roddy White. But the Falcons have always done just a top-notch job building around him. 
They brought in Tony Gonzalez in his second season. Obviously, they eventually added Julio Jones and then, you know, Ridley and others that they've been able to add along the way. Now they got Kyle Pitts. So he's he's been one of the more fortunate situations for any quarterback, despite starting in a bad situation. And then Josh Allen, you know, Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott, what they've done there building around him has been completely top notch. Um, it wasn't there for his rookie season, though. So he survived that rookie season, which was a little bit rough. And then the second year, they rebuilt the offensive line. They brought in Cole Beasley. They brought in John Brown. The third year, they continued to build around that. And then they brought in Stephon Diggs. So you'd like to have that all in place. You can get there, but you better really, really invest and really, really get there, which we didn't see enough of with Sam Darnold, in my opinion. So I'm going to cut him a little bit of slack, but at the same time, he performed below what you would expect, even based upon the weak teammates. So ideally, you see someone who failed in that circumstance at least outperform what you were hoping for with those poor teammates. And we didn't see that for Sam Darnold. So we will see what ends up happening next week. All right, everybody, that's it for this week. Rate, review the pod. Again, if you leave a review, you leave a question, um, I will try to answer it going forward. It's going to be a little slower in the coming weeks. I'm also going to try to get some interviews with some people, some analytically focused people that we can get into some deeper discussions in the slow months of the summer. But I really appreciate everyone listening. I appreciate all the feedback. If you have any more feedback, please hit me up on Twitter at Kevin Cole PFF. And I'll be talking at you next week. Thanks. Thanks.